Hey, Kate. Yeah? Do we give legal advice on this podcast? Oh, gosh, no. Hostile work environment. Exactly. Hey, an appropriate workplace topic. Hostile work environment. I'm the human resources director. Little Miss Hostile Work Environment. Hello. Welcome to the Hostile Work Environment Podcast. I hope somebody's playing this at one and a half times, but okay. (laughs) My name is Mark Aliphant. (laughs) I'm here, as always, with Kate Bischoff. Hi, Kate. How are you today? Well, uh, Happy Mother's Day. Should I start with that? Thank you. Happy Mother's Day. Thank you, and happy belated Mother's Day to all of our listeners. And if Mother's Day is really hard, trust me, I completely understand and I appreciate it. So Because of those damn I, kids. Or your damn mother. So, well, or uh, those I damn mothers. Too. Right, yeah. Yes, I understand. So uh, I am, in general, uh, as I described to one of my good friends, I am very ragey, uh, but madly in love. So, Okay. Fair. Okay. That's, that's good. I mean, you know, it's, I think, I think we're all kind of ragey. Uh, we're yeah. all kind of ragey this week. This is not going to be a normal episode for us today. Uh, we yeah. are both not in a giggly kind of mood, notwithstanding my attempt to get you to giggle at the beginning. Right. And uh, we're, we're going to talk about what happened this week, even though it does have some relation to employment and employment law, which you're going to talk about uh, yes. probably an hour and a half from now by the time I'm done with my <laughs> stuff. Uh, but we thought in light of the draft opinion uh, overturning Roe v. Wade that was released this past week, uh, released, leaked, whatever you want to call it this past mm-hmm. week, we thought it would be a really great thing to talk through where do these rights come from? Where yes. does all right? And we we know we have a largely non-lawyer audience, and not even all lawyers get to study this in law school. And yeah. it happens to be a particular area of interest for myself, uh, which is another long story, which I won't tell you today about how I came about getting into this in law school. But I thought it would be good to talk about the right to privacy and where it comes from and what it actually is in American jurisprudence, uh, and then kind of walk through a little bit of that history and where it comes from and how it got to be, and then turn it over to you to talk about the employment implications. That sound all right? Okay. That sounds fine with me. All right. So... I'm just going to start reading. I have like five pages of script here. I'm going to start going through and <laughs> we're just going to do it and feel free to jump in uh, as you like. So as, as I just said, we've been talking and thinking a lot about the draft opinion. Um, we don't know exactly what the outcome is going to be, but I think it's a pretty safe bet, especially now that it's been leaked, that none of the five justices in favor of overturning it, at least as of the time of the initial vote, uh, are going to change their vote. And I don't think they no. can now. Uh, which no, is, which lends it, credence to a theory that it was a conservative uh, 
uh, clerk or justice who leaked it in the first place. Yes. And my theory is that it's Alito himself um, Mm -hmm. because he doesn't get to get in on the GOP's favorite thing to do right now is, quote unquote, own the libs. um, And he wanted some in on that. That's my theory. But it's just a theory. But that I think locking them into the language is a theory and effective because they can't really change their vote right now for ego reasons alone. Right. So this is what it's going to be. It may not be the exact opinion. They may parse it in some way, but we have no reason to think it's going to be anything other than Roe v. Wade gets overturned. And And Roberts was clear about that this week, too. He admitted to the authenticity and that that was the vote. So this is what's going to happen in June. So while, you know, this likely outcome may have been a surprise to some people, Susan Collins and your hand wringing, we're looking at you. Um, You are on our list. Uh, (laughs) This outcome has been the express point of the Republican takeover of the Supreme Court. If you're surprised, you really haven't been paying attention. Uh, While some people thought they might scale back row, I've always been in the camp like, no, this is it. It's the end. It's gone. Yep. So just a caveat here, a couple of caveats before we get into this. Kate, you and I, to our listeners, we need you to know we are both unabashed supporters of the right to have an abortion. Yes. Okay. Both morally and as we're about to discuss legally. Yes. If you have a problem with that. We respect your disagreement, but want to be clear, if we haven't chased you away from our podcast already, this probably <laughs> is not the podcast for you, or at least not the podcast episode for you. Yes. Okay. And I think you all know that Kate and I love to bring you this podcast as a way to bring some light to the serious issues that plague workforces uh, in the United States and all around the world. And laughter is our language, but today we're not really in a laughing mood. We already kind of talked about that. And we felt it would be a better use of our time to talk about how Roe v. Wade came about. Yes. And what makes this draft opinion so bad. What else it puts at risk. And then, like we've mentioned already, uh, how will this impact workforces going forward? So. Yes. Again, one more caveat before I dig in. I want to say that a lot of this comes from multiple sources. I did rely somewhat heavily on the Wikipedia entries because I just don't have that much time to pull from more academic sources, but I know enough about this to know that I was getting some accuracy from those entries. Um, This is also very high level as a discussion. Uh, Entire books are written and classes are taught about these subjects that take entire semesters or years in law school. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm going to try to tackle much of this in a single podcast episode. I will, by default, be missing a lot here. So if you're like, you didn't talk about my favorite case or your discussion of substantive due process really didn't hit the mark. I know. I know. I'm not really (laughs) talking about all of that in that much detail. Yes. Uh, So like spare me the hate mail. I know. Uh, Mm -hmm. If you have nice mail, that would be fine. Uh, (laughs) So, all right. We need to start somewhere, Kate. So my, my question for you. What can you tell me about the Connecticut Comstock Act of 1873? So Mr. Comstock became the postmaster general in part because he did not like the idea that uh, salacious sexual things could be sent through the mail. And the Comstock Act allowed the government to then monitor the mail for the salaciousness and pornography and contraceptive contraception. Gosh, I wish I had your brain. (laughs) 
Because um, I, I was uh, expecting to be like, uh, sort of this thing. I don't know. <laughs> so that was awesome. Well, we didn't I, prep I, that. I, yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Well, that's amazing. I, I will also admit that I knew that. And then I've gone back and re-listened to the abortion chapter in Ellie Mustel's book, Allow Me to Retort, A Black Man's Guide to the U.S. Constitution, um, where he talks about the Comstock Act as, you know, lead it. So uh, it's not just in my brain. It I recently listened Still. to Ellie on it. So Amazing. Uh, so, yes, the Comstock laws were a set of federal acts passed by the United States Congress under the Grant administration. So we're back mid-19th century here. Uh, oh, no, a little, little after, because Grant was a general. So we're in the late 1870s, 80s, right? Okay, so back half. <laughs> Sorry. Of- I, I mid for me is like from ten to ninety. Anywhere between that is going to be mid. Uh, okay, I, we're post Civil War though. Po- well, yes, we're post Civil War. Sorry, thank you. Um, Grant administration. Yeah, so uh, we're actually in the eighteen seventies. Uh, the Federal Parent Comstock Act was in eighteen seventy three, and it criminalized any use of the United States Postal Service to send any of the following items: obscenity, contraceptives, abortifacients. And sex toys, which I find it fascinating <laughs> to hear about sex toys in the 1870s. Uh, personal letters. They were battery with, operated then. They so. were not. No, they were a little different. Personal letters with any sexual content or information uh, or any information about any of the things we just mentioned. About half of the states enacted their own versions of this, expanding on the federal law. And the Connecticut Comstock Act of 1873 made it illegal to, quote, Use any drug, medicinal article, or instrument for the purpose of preventing contraception. Mm-hmm. Violators could be fined, quote, fined not less than $50 or imprisoned not less than 60 days, nor more than one year, or be both fined and imprisoned. Yes. So, in the late 19th, early 20th century, physicians all over the country avoided publication of materials related to birth control, even though they often counseled patients on the use of birth control. Yes. Despite this law in Connecticut, specifically where we're talking about, the first planned parenthood clinic in Connecticut opened in 1935 in Hartford. Several more were opened in subsequent years, including one in Waterbury, Connecticut. In the 1940s, several cases arose from the Waterbury Clinic providing contraceptives, challenging the constitutionality of Connecticut's Comstock Law, which by this time was one of only two left uh, on the books. Do you know what the other state left was just by chance? You've got a, a one no. in 49 chance. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not going to know what the other state is. It was Massachusetts. Okay. So my sense is that a number of these cases we're about to talk about, they're setups. They're setting up oh, to yeah. try, right? So they're publicly yep. flouting the law to be penalized under the law such that they can bring their claim. But it took yes. a while. Yes. And this first one is, you're going to talk about Griswold? Well, I'm not there yet. Like, don't just okay. jump ahead. There's so many cases. <laughs> uh, Griswold just happens to be my favorite. So that's well, why. But, okay. okay. So let's, let's, let's talk about Griswold for just – Griswold – is in essence what I'm talking to you all about today. But I'm trying to mm-hmm. get to the lead up to Griswold first. Okay. okay. So in 1943, a doctor and mother challenged the Connecticut law on the grounds that a ban on contraception could, in certain sexual situations, threaten the lives and well-being of patients. The Supreme Court, it did eventually get to the Supreme Court, 
and dismissed on the grounds that the doctor lacked standing to sue on behalf of his patients. Yes. Okay, so we have a standing issue. Okay. Fast forward 18 years. So it feels like this comes along pretty quickly in our terms today, but there's almost 20 years that pass between these. So in, in 1961, a Yale School of Medicine gynecologist brought another challenge to the law. It made it to the Supreme Court again, but the Supreme Court dismissed it without hearing on ripeness grounds because none of the plaintiffs had been charged or threatened with prosecution. So there was no issue to resolve. Right. Mm-hmm. So you can't sue. Right. They're, you know, they're actually looking. For, it sounds like they're looking for a declaratory action from the Supreme Court that this is right, that this is right. illegal, that the law is not constitutional. But you have to actually have a dispute in controversy right. in order for the claim to be right. And the Supreme Court doesn't just go about doing declaratory judgments uh, ever. Maybe well, ever, that, but not frequently. And as a quick aside, this is what leads to the problem with the Texas law, the six, quote unquote, six week abortion ban, because you don't have the private citizen imposing the $10,000 piece yet. Right. We're just trying to stop that action from going into place. So we don't really have that ripe controversy. It was written in a way to av- yep. uh, prevent Avoid people that. from challenging it so it could never be ripe. Right. Okay. So that case uh, that was dismissed on ripeness grounds was called Poe v. Ullman. And the failure to hear that case generated one of the most cited dissents in all of Supreme Court history. But, and we'll get to that in a few minutes. Okay. But it's worth stopping here and pointing out and just talking about the right to privacy as a general thought in the consciousness Mm -hmm. of people in America, right? So we all grew up, most of us listen to this podcast, at least I think if I'm, if my experience is like anyone else's, (laughs) right? That especially for Americans of our vintage, right? And those who are younger, Mm -hmm. we grew up hearing about knowing about the right to privacy without ever inquiring about where it came from. I, for one, recall being really indoctrinated in this concept as, as a young person to the point I never even questioned my own right to privacy. And yes, let's acknowledge the privilege and being able to say that. Okay? <laughs> yes. But also never questioned where that right came from. Mm-hmm. In grammar school, high school, I learned a bit about the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Uh, but I don't ever remember anything specifically about like the right to privacy or where it came from or what it was. Yeah. You know, we talked about the Bill of Rights. We talked about those things, mm-hmm. but we didn't talk about the right to privacy. And it wasn't... Oh, uh, I'm going to let you say the word, but keep going. Right. So it wasn't until the P I word. Was... P word? What are you talking about? Privacy? No. Penumbra. Uh, Kate, you're like, th- <laughs> that's, two it, it, that's two pages <laughs> from now. That's two pages from now. Okay. Keep going. <laughs> that's my next question for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is what happens when, when, when we don't like. Compare notes prepare and you over prepare. Yes. Uh, so <laughs> let's, um, gosh, just, just spoilers folks. Gosh. Um, but it wasn't, so anyway, it wasn't until law school and even then not right away that I actually learned where the right to privacy comes from. And even then I didn't grasp, even though I could see the dates on the paper in front of me, just how recent a construction it is 
And it wasn't even until later than that that I realized that the right to privacy is not viewed by everyone like me and you as a universal sacrosanct right that lots of people don't think it should exist because it makes, it protects things they don't like. Yes. Okay. So before we get to the case and before we talk about your P word, (laughs) I want to talk about the constitution for a minute. Okay. So recall the original constitution itself did not include any guarantee of freedoms. It was ratified in June of 1788, and it wasn't for another three and a half years in December 1791 that the Bill of Rights was ratified, which was the first 10 amendments to the Constitution. Mm -hmm. And sorry, this is getting a little basic. I know most folks know this, but not everybody (laughs) knows this. Um, So I just want to make sure we're starting from the same foundation. So even those most basic freedoms that we think of as constitutional didn't even show up in the Constitution for the first three and a half years. Uh, Mm -hmm. But I want to talk about them real briefly. Mm-hmm. I'm going to read them. All right. So we're going to okay. start with the, we're going to start with the first amendment. Cause I want you to hear each of these in turn. So you can understand where we're coming from in about five or 10 minutes from now. Okay. Right, so first amendment quote, I'm just going to read it out. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of a religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And I want to note for everybody, just this is a side point mm-hmm. that comes first. Yes. That comes first before the other stuff, just to give you an idea of how important it was uh, and how much it's not really being interpreted correctly today. That's my side yes. point. But, <laughs> yes. Or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Okay. okay. I think we all know about the First Amendment. I'm not going to talk about it much more. Uh, other, we, we know that the First Amendment is completely misused and miscited and misunderstood. We're not going to get into any of that today. Uh, I just want you to be thinking about that as rights conferred by, mm-hmm. by the Bill of Rights. Okay. Third Amendment. Yes. Let's talk about the Third Amendment for a moment. That's my favorite. No soldier shall in time of peace be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner nor in time of war, but in a manner to be prescribed by law. Okay, mm-hmm. so what does that have to do with this? All right, uh, go, go uh, for I, it. So if I have to be paid to have someone in my house, that suggests that my house is mine and mine alone, that Congress can't come in or the government can't come into my house. And so because it's my own, there suggests that I have dominion over it. And so it's somewhat private. Precisely. So this sounds like it's about the military. But the <laughs> subtext not, is that your house is your own. Yes. And the government can have a role with what happens inside, but only under very limited circumstances. And only subject to number four which I didn't actually include today. Do you want to talk about the Fourth <laughs> Amendment? Go for but it. The, search and seizure. I can't, right. I, yeah, search I know you seizure. can't quote it exactly, but but talk right. about it for a moment. But the search, the pro- prohibition for search and seizure is that I have to have a good reason to break the seal on your house, your car, et cetera. Because exactly. that seal is this idea of privacy. So unless I, the government has a very good reason or you know can overcome reasonable search and seizure, 
or, you know, failure to like, it's the prohibition of unreasonable search and seizure, I think is some of the language. So you have to be able to break that by having reasonableness to go in and search. And so that is another part of this uh, patchwork of, of privacy. Exactly. Okay. Let's talk fifth amendment. No person, this is only part of the fifth amendment, relevant part. (laughs) No person shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself, nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. So again, this speaks about private property, right? This, Mm -hmm. and your freedom to be, to incriminate yourself against from incriminating yourself, but that your property is your own. And you, yeah. we may be able to take it from you, but not without a really good reason, without a really good process. And we have to pay you for it. And we have to so. pay you for it. All right. You're, you'll, you'll, your criticism here could be I'm skipping some stuff, but we only have so much time. So right. I want to talk about the Ninth Amendment. Ah, this one, yes. This one's super weird. Okay. Uh-huh. And, Especially and so, when paired with number 10. Right, which again, I'm not talking about ten today. You can you can add on ten here for a second uh, when I'm done. But but the enumeration it reads: the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Right, so this specifically references that there are other rights not in the Constitution that are retained by the people. Okay, mm-hmm. what does that actually mean? Nobody has a freaking clue. The Supreme mm-hmm. Court has argued over this, uh, and the justices seem to have no idea, or those that do have an idea uh, disagree with the other ones who have an idea. Uh, mm-hmm. Essentially, certain founders were concerned that the future generations might argue that because a certain right was not listed in the Bill of Rights, it didn't exist. Okay, so the practical effect here is that this is very hotly debated, uh, but it does actually fall into this Griswold conversation. I'm not going to come back to this in detail, but some of the justices in Griswold and similar cases along that line are relying on some of this from the Ninth Amendment to help justify their finding of a right to privacy. Yes. All right. Now, let's talk about the 14th Amendment briefly, though the 14th Amendment actually expressly does not factor into Griswold. It comes along later. Okay. Yes. Not, it exists. But it doesn't be, it's not pulled into the argument until later. Okay. So yes. 14th Amendment. Okay. So we're now past the first 10. So we're out of the Bill of Rights. This mm-hmm. was adopted in 1868 as part of a trio of amendments coming out of Reconstruction. Section one. It's very, it's actually one of the longer <laughs> amendments. amendments. I'm only going to read you from section one. Even though it's one. like still like seven sentences to Right. Work. It's still not that long. And as I read this to you, I I want all of you thinking about. This is not a lot of words and the amount of law and jurisprudence that comes out of these very simple sentences I'm about to read is mind blowingly large and classes mm-hmm. are taught on these very specific sentences. Okay. So, and again, we're not going to get into paid that today. a lot of money to learn, to learn about, about what that. these sentences mean. Yes. Okay. So section one of the 14th amendment and relevant part reads, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of like, like, no, that's a typo mark, of life, (laughs) liberty, or property without due process of law. Okay. So we have another due process. Fifth amendment has it. 14th amendment has it. Nor deny to any person 
within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Now, again, lots packed into that short statement. Mm -hmm. We don't have time to wade into all of it. This leads to, you know, the equal protection due process, right? There's substantive due process. There's procedural Mm -hmm. due process. There's all of these things. And we're not really going to talk about that today. No. Uh, That's that's another class for another day. But uh, (laughs) I do think it's worth talking about the word liberty for just a moment. We all use liberty freely uh, Mm -hmm. in our colloquial, just everyday conversations. Uh, But as it relates to due process, it's very interesting. In a case, in a Supreme Court case in 1954, the court stated, although the court, referring to itself, has not assumed to define liberty with any great precision, that term is not confined to mere freedom from bodily restraint. Liberty under law extends to the full range of conduct which the individual is free to pursue, and it cannot be restricted except for a proper governmental objective. Yes. Okay, so it's saying the government cannot restrict your rights unless it has a pretty darn good reason to do it. Mm-hmm. Which brings us back to this case, Poe v. Ullman, that's, that the Supreme Court did not hear, but to which John Marshall Harlan II dissented. Mm -hmm. But in that dissent, he adopted a broad view of liberty in the Due Process Clause. I'm going to read you this long quote from that because this quote is so important in American jurisprudence. The full scope of the liberty guaranteed by the Due Process Clause cannot be found in or limited by the precise terms of the specific guarantees elsewhere provided in the Constitution. This quote-unquote liberty is not a series of isolated points pricked out in terms of taking of, pro- of the taking of property, the freedom of speech, press, and religion, the right to keep and bear arms, the freedom from unreasonable searches and seizures, and so on. It is a rational continuum which, broadly speaking, includes a freedom from all substantial arbitrary impositions and purposeless restraints, and which all, uh, I'm cutting out some of it here, but, and which also recognizes what a reasonable and sensitive judgment must that certain interests require particularly careful scrutiny of the state needs asserted to justify their abridgment. So this is really where we start to get language around what kind of review of laws do we look at that may abridge rights? Are they done Mm -hmm. under strict scrutiny? Are they done under rational basis? And there's different ways of looking at those. And they go back and forth because they can't make up their minds. And this is a very much a judge-made law kind of area. So, but this is... And and oftentimes, whether it is strict scrutiny or rational basis determines the whole kit and caboodle. Exactly. Whatever the judge picks, which one, you're done at that point. And so let's let's just apply that for a second. If... If a mm-hmm. state looks to limit abortion, if the review is under strict scrutiny, it's much more likely that that state restriction will be struck down than under yeah. a rational basis. Yeah. Okay. Because you could argue there is a rational basis to limit abortion. I think you and I are probably very much on the no side of that. But mm-hmm. under that basis, deference is going to be given to the state. Uh, And if they really give forth any articulation, even if you don't agree with that articulation, the court's generally going to say, go forth. You can have your law. If it's reviewed under strict scrutiny, probably not. 
you have to have a real compelling, really, really <laughs> like super compelling reason uh, to restrict a right under an area that is held under strict scrutiny. So what what Harlan is really getting at here starts to turn into real law about we need yes. to have a certain kind of review of these laws that abridge rights. Okay, so let's talk about Griswold because this leads us directly into Griswold. Yes. Appellant Estelle Griswold was mm -hmm. the executive director of Planned Parenthood League of Connecticut. Dr. Mm -hmm. C. Lee Buxton, whose mm -hmm. name is forgotten in history because he wasn't the first one listed, is also um, an And appellant. to be fair, Griswold should be listed first here. I wasn't suggesting <laughs> otherwise. Yeah, Just, no, I know. But I know. it would be nice if it was Griswold and Buxton versus Connecticut, you versus, know. Yes. Because, I, I, you know, this was interesting history for me because I didn't actually have that, that factual background. Uh, mm -hmm. But fair. <laughs> so, uh, Buxton was a doctor and professor at Yale Medical School. They were arrested and found guilty as accessories to providing illegal contraception. But there's a really important fact here. Go for they it. They opened their clinic November 1. They are arrested November 10. So, and they in, intentionally set this up so that they could be arrested. I, I believe yeah. that is in the historical record, that they wanted to be arrested for this. It, it's because, beyond... So they could get past... The ripeness issue. Yeah. It's beyond what I, the depth that I was researching for purposes of this today, but that is completely consistent, at least with what I've yeah. read and consistent with the thought here that the whole purpose here was to get rid of this stupid law. Yes. And they needed to be arrested and or fined in order to get past the ripeness issue that was the problem in Poe v. Ullman. Yeah. Okay, so they were arrested, they were found guilty, they were fined $100 each. They appealed to the Supreme Court of Errors of Connecticut, <laughs> yes. claiming that the law violated the U.S. Constitution. The Connecticut court upheld the conviction, and they appealed to the Supreme Court, which reviewed the case in 1965. And and this is solely about giving contraceptive contraception to married women. Correct. Correct. Now, Kate, now's mm -hmm. your chance. This is where <laughs> I have written down here, before I get into the opinion, do you know what a penumbra is? Not what's talked about in the case. Okay. What is an actual penumbra? Well, what if I'm going to be honest with you. Where does that word come from? Well, Justice Douglas, I feel like, pulled it from his ass. But, uh, I like I really don't know. As a legal like, concept, yes. As an actual <laughs> concept, it is a real thing. And when I tell you what it is, it may uh -huh. make it all make more sense. Okay. All right. So, a penumbra, this is the dictionary definition, and I'm going to kind of explain my understanding of what it actually is. It's a space of partial illumination as in an eclipse <laughs> between the okay. perfect shadow on all sides and the full light. So Yeah, it's the fuzziness, right, around so it. So it's right. So in essence, if you're looking at a solar eclipse and you see and, and it's through a, an actual safety right, goggle, without, don't you know, just don't, don't trump, trump it, it and look yeah. at you know, but if you're looking at the solar eclipse and you see the bright light of the sun wrapping around the outside of the silhouette of the moon, that bright light on the outside is the penumbra. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, so now heavy he, thesaurus used by Justice Douglas. Yeah, so I mean, uh, but conceptually, really astute. I mean, I, I'm yes. you know as somebody who's into you know astronomy and and space and geography <laughs> and all that stuff. Like I, when I read that in law school, I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. Uh, it's a cool word to use. Uh, everybody else would have looked at me and been like, nerd. But I thought yeah. it was cool. So keep that in mind as we get further into the case and we talk about the way in which it comes up. But just to start with the case, okay, the court held seven to two that the Connecticut law violated the Constitution, finding that the Constitution protects, quote unquote, marital privacy as mm-hmm. a fundamental constitutional right. At this time, without even looking at due process or the 14th Amendment, there are technical reasons why they decided not to do that. The court looked essentially only at the Bill of Rights, the First, the Third, the Fourth, the Fifth Amendments, and looked uh, at earlier cases where the court had also found personal liberties that were not explicitly in the Constitution, such as, for example, the constitutional right to parental control over child rearing, which dates back to the 20s. Okay, so William O. Douglas who wrote the opinion, famously stated that the foregoing cases suggest that specific guarantees in the Bill of Rights have penumbras Mm -hmm. formed by emanations from those guarantees that help give them life and substance. Various guarantees create zones of privacy. We have had many controversy over, sorry, we have had many controversies over these penumbral rights of privacy and repose. These cases bear witness that the right of privacy, which presses for recognition here, is a legitimate one. Yes. So he's saying, yeah, it's not in the shadowed part of the eclipse. It's in the part that's around the edges. It's the Mm -hmm. it's the part that and it's still there, even though that's actually not substantive. It's just Mm -hmm. light, but it's still there and you can still read into it. Okay, so effectively what Douglas is doing here is saying, yes, yes, we acknowledge The words right to privacy do not exist in the Constitution. But when you read all the rights that are enumerated and mix them all up into a soupy mess, we can read them together to say that it protects far more than that which is explicitly protected. And these protections are found in the penumbras. Now, this is at some level a key point on the road of interpreting the Constitution uh, to only include what's written in it, which we call strict constructionism as opposed Mm -hmm. to what strict constructionists might call judicial activism, but which I like to call recognizing that the Constitution was intended to be a living, breathing document. Yes, as opposed to originalism, which takes the meaning of the words at the time the amendment or the Constitution itself was written. Which I'm just going to say, that is bullshit. Bullshit. (laughs) Yes. Jurists that go down that path they, they literally just want the United States to be legally what it was in the 1780s, right? And it takes things like the Second Amendment, which made sense perhaps in the, in the moment, and they apply it to today's standards under the standards of that time, and it literally makes no sense. And we're not here to talk about the Second Amendment. You and I could both do a whole show on that. But, <laughs> yes. But, and because and, we both agree that it's, mm-hmm. it's problematic in many, many ways. Uh, but we're not here to talk about that, but that is kind of what a strict constructionist does without thinking about what else has happened since then that might, that might cause one of those founders to think differently about the words on the paper. 
Right. And the idea that the words meaning at the time, well, the words meaning at the time meant that black people were enslaved, that women don't get the right to vote. Like we don't get the right to inherit or wear pants or anything like that. So like there's plenty to say that the original meanings of these documents should not be used because we have progressed since then. And I know re- the verb usage of progressed in and of itself is controversial because of quote unquote progressives, but we have moved on since then. And we luckily thank the Lord in just a very, very few times where now it's criminal behavior. Do we actually have enslaved people and we need to move on from that? So, right. and, and I want you to think about what Kate just said. When we get to the end of this conversation and we're talking about what Alito wrote Mm -hmm. and he talks about historical record. Okay. So keep all of that in mind when we get there. I don't spend a lot of time on it, but it does hearken to that. And I want you all thinking about that. So just to call out here, the two justices in Griswold who did not like this opinion, right, spoke to this specific issue in a way that I think is much more reasoned than maybe we get a lot now to the point where it's almost like I could see it going that way and it wouldn't offend me that much. Uh, But Justice Hugo Black, in his dissent, concluded, I get nowhere in this case by talking about a constitutional right to privacy as an emanation from one or more constitutional provisions. I like my privacy as well as the next one. Right. So he's saying as a policy objective, this isn't a bad thing. I like this. I like this but it's not my role to read that into the Constitution. He then says, I am nevertheless compelled to admit that government has a right to invade it unless prohibited by some specific constitutional provision. Well, and he's taking the role of the Tenth Amendment, which would say these rights are then left with the people and states. So, and that where we come full circle with, Mm-hmm. Right. So notwithstanding Black's dissent, the right in this case to marital privacy was found, though it's clear enough that the point is only narrowly applicable to that specific purpose. So the right of married right. couples to use birth control. Anything else that you think might emanate from this right to privacy, each one of those needs its own case. Right. And, and I really... I want to underscore the fact that this was married couples getting contraception because this doesn't excel. Like I, a single woman wouldn't be able to have contraceptive contraception after Griswold for Connecticut. You wouldn't have the protected right. The state, the state could still limit your right. It doesn't mean the state has to limit your right. Right. So many states wouldn't limit that, but some states would, which is the exact same kind of thing we get into an abortion with everything else. So this was of course, just the beginning So many, many cases followed. I'm going to briefly mention a few of them here. Okay. So seven years later, we have Eisenstadt v. Baird, okay, which Mm -hmm. extended Griswold's uh, uh, reasoning to recognize a right of birth control for unmarried couples. This is pursuant to the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment that unmarried couples need to be treated the same. Okay. We have Roe v. My favorite part of that decision is that it's still couples. It's still couples it's not and it's still heterosexual couples, right? Yep. It's, it's still very limiting, but each mm-hmm. one of these is an incremental increase. And there are many incremental 
increases that I'm not even going to talk about here, but I'm just talking about six, five or six of the main ones that all, and the reason I'm listing these is they all rely on Griswold. They all fall Mm -hmm. back on the penumbra argument. Okay. Uh, Roe v. Wade Mm -hmm. only a year later. So Roe v. Wade and actually in the history of right to privacy cases is reasonably early. So it's uh, only eight years after Griswold. Okay. Well, and it's 73, it's 73. And I think we need to go back just a few years, I, mean, I, I pulled it for years, um, into 1967, which was interracial marriage. And right. Loving so Bush, Loving v. Virginia. Virginia. I, yeah. Okay. I, yeah, I, I was I picking and choosing there, here. But... Yeah. So interracial <laughs> marriage, also under this line of cases, Loving v. Virginia. Well, and, and a little bit more substantive due process piece, I believe, yeah. in Loving. Um, but it's still the idea that the government doesn't get to regulate your relationships. Right. So. Yes. So Roe v. Wade, we're going to come back to, but this was one of the earlier cases to start relying on the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. Um mm-hmm. 1977, Care v. Population Services International found a right to contraception for juveniles at least 16 years of age. The court held here that the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment does not allow a state to intrude on an individual's decisions on matters of procreation, which are protected as privacy rights. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to skip way ahead here. There's a whole lot of cases. Go ahead. And I want to, I mean, I want to make a quick timeout on the use of contraception because contraception the the concept of it is to prevent a pregnancy but millions of people use contraception for other things they use it to prevent pain that comes along with endometriosis by limiting and uh taking hormones and making sure that there isn't as much pain it's regulating periods it's so many more things than just contraception. And so the idea that these drugs are categorized as contraception is because they're, it's the first use that they're generally used for. It's for so much broader so that if we lose the ability to take contraception, it's not just a limit to pregnancy. It's also dealing specifically with, you know, female genitalia parts working the way they're supposed to. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's not just about procreation. There's lots to it. Um, Though I think Mel Brooks would disagree with you when he says that every sperm is sacred. uh, And all you are out there wanking, you're just killing babies (laughs) left and right. Mm -hmm. All right. So from there, uh, I'm going to skip ahead to 2003 Lawrence versus Texas. Now, this case has a lot of meaning for me um, Mm -hmm. for for reasons I won't get into other than I was in law school, 2003. So this is the case that struck down Texas's still existing anti-sodomy law. This is 2003 Mm -hmm. and Texas still said gay sex is a thing that we can regulate. Yes. Okay. And it said the case that certain forms of intimate sexual contact between members of the same sex cannot be prohibited by the state law, right? This is in fact, the case that got me going on all of this, it came out in my last semester of law school while I was taking a class on sexuality and the law, which was essentially a review of all the cases we're talking about here. Yep. Uh, and just to think about the fact that this was 20 years ago, less than 20 years mm-hmm. ago, and mm-hmm. Texas still made it illegal to have gay sex behind closed doors in your own home. Okay, so mm-hmm. this 
right to privacy long before that really is still so limited. Uh, and there's other areas that they haven't gotten to. I just, I just want to call that out that that's recent. Okay. Even more recently, we need to talk about 2015 Ober Obergefell v. Hodges, which is the case that legalized same-sex marriage under the same legal framework. Yes. Okay, so that's just a short review of cases, but I wanted to highlight that there's a long arc of what has until now been generally an expansion of the right to privacy. There's places where they limit it, especially on abortion in the interim intervening years, but it's generally been an expansion of right over 60 years of jurisprudence. So this isn't new. This isn't, a, no. this, this isn't, I mean, maybe in the grand scheme of the United States, it's still in its childhood, but it's 60 years. This is, mm -hmm. this is not something you just overturn. Now let's talk briefly about Roe v. Wade. That's a case that follows the same line of reasoning. I don't plan to discuss it in much significant detail other than to note that according to the court, the right to privacy extends only so far as the state having a compelling interest in regulating one's private affairs. And in the case of abortion, that compelling interest takes the shape of the unborn fetus. Okay, so unlike in the contraception cases, there is, there is a compelling interest on the other side of this that courts are trying to weigh, right? And as a result, this, this has ended up in this necessarily awkward balancing test between the right to privacy of the mother and the emerging mm -hmm. rights of the unborn fetus. Oh, uh, no, I, I want to stop you there. I don't think it's the emerging rights of the unborn fetus. It is the compelling interest of the state in increasing its population. Um, I don't think. I I read a little more than that into what Alito just well, wrote. That's for sure. Well, for agreed, but black men, um, as and ready for some Minnesota trivia, black men is one of the quote unquote Minnesota twins. They're two Minnesota based judges who come onto the Supreme Court, Warmberger being the other. Um, and but just as black men, a Nixon appointee gets on and discusses the kind of sliding scale of, of course, a woman has the right to privacy at day one, but the state's compelling interest comes into play at the point of viability to have the baby be born. So it is, it is that switch, which black men relies upon um, that takes a bit of controversy, which is why we get Casey, the next right, which uh, scales, it, case after scales that. it back. Yeah. But the, but the black men decision. Okay. So um, Roe, fair yes. enough. Yes. That, Interpretation, however, is not what's driving Does not future survive, yes. jurisprudence around this. Okay, right. So, but Roe Ro is the is the characterization. I think I I read Blackman's decision to be the compelling interest of the state, not the rights of the fetus. Of the fetus, right? And but that's what it becomes. and that switches. Fair. Yes. That's but that's what so it becomes over time. That's be what it becomes. Thank right. you. Right, and it becomes that way because of this idea that the unborn are defenseless and they need a voice and it becomes the political talking point, which then feeds into the Supreme Court jurisprudence from there. So, okay, Great. continue. No, please. thank you. No, that's, <laughs> that's, that's fair. And um, I was reducing a whole line of cases down to a sentence or two. So, um, so basically with that background, I want to talk about Justice Alito's draft opinion overturning mm -hmm. Roe v. Wade. He writes, 
in part. This thing's like you know 70, 80 pages, and um, I'm picking out a couple of key pieces. The Constitution makes no reference to abortion, and no such right is implicitly protected by any constitutional provision, including the one on which the defenders of Roe and Casey now chiefly rely, the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. That provision has been held to guarantee some rights that are not mentioned in the Constitution, but any such right must be, quote, deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition, end quote, and implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. And that's citing a 1997 case called Washington versus Glucksburg. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment. (laughs) Yes, deeply rooted at the time of the Constitution in 1787 when we had enslaved people and women weren't allowed to vote. Of course, that's what that meant. Oh, and by the way, we probably could kill people by drawing and quartering them at the time too. So And enslave them. Yes. Right, and and I mean... Torture them. And, and torture them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in many ways, some of these rights that are being created through or, or not even being created, being interpreted through this line of cases are a direct reaction to the fact that they aren't rooted in American jurisprudence. Yes. That these are things well, that historically haven't been something that states have allowed you to do. Right. Um, Senator John Cornyn on the Senate floor recently quote unquote misspoke when he said that Plessy versus Ferguson oh God, was so mis <laughs> was misdecided because of this, you know, this concept of legalness, right? That separative equal of Dred Scott should have been upheld. So when you think of what is deeply rooted, you have to think about all of these things that come with the start of the country. And Dred Scott was even a huge advance over slavery because now it was separate but equal. But the idea that cases like Plessy and Brown versus Board of Education were misdecided because they were not deeply rooted in history at the time takes anyone who is not a white, cisgender, heterosexual male and say, you are wrong in every part of your identity, every part. Okay. So the only concept is whiteness and maleness. It, that's right. exactly right. And this is relying on, and I'll admit, I don't know this case, Washington v. Glucksburg, and I was running out of time before we got started here. So I didn't go <laughs> to see what context that comes up in. This is not a particularly famous, in my experience, or well-known, I don't know if this is dicta in that case, but he's mm-hmm. he is taking that one sentence and effectively saying that an entire line of the last 70 years of cases is arguably not good law because of something that came later. I think right. that's and massively our, problematic. And it's certainly yeah, and not- And for our a, audience- yeah. yeah, go ahead, go ahead. For our audience, the term dicta is what we lawyers know as the fluff that goes around a case. So when we read a case, we read all of the words, right? But the most important part, quote unquote, is the holding and the analysis. Anything other than that is just BS that kind of, you know, at least makes the story read right. So when we say something is dicta, it's just the BS. It had nothing to do with the actual holding. So if this deeply rooted in history was just the fluff that went around the case, it should be technically meaningless. So as a foundation, 
his whole opinion relies and or, or significant part anyway on that quote. And mm-hmm. he then goes on to say that there is no, none whatsoever, uh, history saying that abortion has some sort of rooting in American history. Now, many commentators have, have spoken to quite to the contrary about that, but he decides only to look at ones that support his, his ultimate finding. He goes on to right. argue that abortion is not covered by strict scrutiny, uh, which we talked about a tiny bit, because it is, quote, mm-hmm. a medical procedure that only one sex can undergo. Uh, okay. He then goes on to make a historical-based argument that prior to Roe, there was no support in American law for a constitutional right to attain. We already talked about that. Uh, that's, of course, not true. He then goes on to cite all of the cases I've mentioned here and more arguing that abortion is different from other cases about a broader right to autonomy, because unlike those other cases, quote, abortion destroys what those other decisions call potential life and what the law at issue in this case regards as the life of an unborn human being. None of the other decisions cited by Roe involve the critical moral question posed by abortion. They are therefore inapposite, which means they don't apply. Okay. And quite frankly, this is fucking dicta. This is dicta at this point in time, because the holding of Alito's decision is that abortion is not protected by the Constitution. He opens the door by by destroying the analysis of the case and then said, oh, but these other things that you guys hold near and dear to your heart, those really don't apply. That's actually the dicta. And while he says it doesn't apply, he opens the door by explicitly stating each one of them. Yep. So his statement there, as you just very well said, it's an oversimplification of law and of, of morality and a complex issue and essentially tells us that the United States Supreme Court is now telling us states can confer equal, if not more rights on a fetus than on the individual carrying that fetus. And that is yes. massively problematic. The immediate dangers to women and the turn back to an ugly past that are intended in overturning Roe are obvious and frankly beyond the scope of our discussion. Uh, And I leave that to all of you and direct you to the many commentators on the subject who frankly aren't men, okay? Uh, But I want to leave you uh, with this, which is the main point of of why I wanted to bring and why we wanted to bring this conversation. Okay, Alita goes out of his way to say that this case applies only to abortion and has no intent to further disrupt this line of cases. And many conservative observers out there or those who wish to find silver linings are pointing to that statement in an attempt to calm people down. Don't yep. fall for it. Okay? Nope. In the same breath that he says that, Alito cites all of these other cases that descend from Griswold. And if you apply the same standards he applies to Roe to those other cases, for example, that they have to be objectively rooted in the history of American jurisprudence, they are all at risk, including the right to privacy itself. Just look at the Comstock laws that we talked about at the start. It's hard to say that there's an overriding legal uh, tradition for contraception, for example, when you can look back and see a a history of laws like that that last for over 100 years. So, like, come on. Don't fall for it. Okay. I'm not saying that will happen. But Roe is... go, Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, and I will say that don't fall for it because watch what people are saying now there are in missouri and mississippi we're coming for your contraception we're coming for a gay marriage we're coming for sodomy again so 
it it doesn't what Alito says may be one thing, but it is hollow because the people They're not who addressing loved that. him, right? The people who are loving what he's saying are saying we're going to come after all of these other things. Yeah, because get ready. we want to come after all of these other things. Right. So they get will, ready. They will come after they will. it. They will come after it, and it's a question of whether the court will follow down that path or not. And we're not saying it will. No, but. Well, and, and Roe at and, this point is dead, as far as I'm concerned. But our fear as lawyers and as human beings is that the court is now signaling that all of the rights are still in question, even though they've said otherwise, all of these, by citing well, them and, right next to, I, I just, that, they are they are sending a message to certain individuals who want to get rid of these things, bring your cases to us and we'll take a look. And one thing I want to make very clear is that these cases take a very long time. So once we get the actual decision, probably at the very last day of June or uh, right away in early July, once we get the decision, abortion will be unlawful. It will be criminalized in a bunch of states. Um, there'll be trigger laws in a bunch and uh, additional laws passed to make uh, abortion criminal, which means a individual who takes an abortion needs an abortion and or that person's doctor will be arrested and will be charged with a crime which could be life imprisonment under some of the laws so i, I want to make that very clear but at that point abortion is legal today in in every state but as that point it's going to take another case to get up in front of the court and so if once that decision happens if there's a sodomy trigger law, there is a racial, you know, prohibition on interracial marriage state of law. It has to go through the system to get to the Supreme Court to make that unlawful. But the statute will be effective as soon as it's passed. So there could be many months. There could be many years. Take years. We're in a particular state. It's going to take time for the court, even if it does turn it down. The chilling effect of this decision spreads much further because laws can be enacted quickly. The judicial advance takes a very long time. So it's not just, oh, well, the court will overturn it because Alito said they probably would. It's not that. It's that there's still that time period where people are going to be afraid and they're not going to be arrested. They're not going to want to, you know, put their marriage in that point in peril. So it is. It is so dangerous to open the door because it's going to immediately affect so many people. Well, on that so, cheering note. I, yeah, well, and I, I want to say one other thing. I really appreciate you, Mark, because when people are talking about abortion, it always comes back to talking to someone like me, a woman who identifies as a woman. And it is very rare, or uh, not very rare, I should say, but it takes people like you, men, to stand up and say, this affects me too, which is very, very important. I mean, I, you know, Monday night, uh, a friend sent me the political article, I think probably what, six or seven o'clock. And, and she's like, is this real? And I'm like, yes, I believe it is real. We knew this was coming. It, this is going to be real. I didn't sleep Monday night and I was planning on posting a video and I had like, no, we can't talk about a handbook policy today. We have to talk about this because this is going to be what's affecting all of your people today. It might not affect uh, white heterosexual men, but like tangibly, 
but it is going to affect your people. And, you know, when I read new laws that are have passed out of committee in states like Louisiana, which would pro, prohibit the IUD that I use as a main form of birth control. It criminalizes um, and it. It's crazy. Criminalizes it. I would get arrested for having an IUD. Um, I, I tweeted that I would do ads for my IUD company because I absolutely love it. I absolutely need it. Um, every time I thought about being pregnant, I was. Um, and so like, it, it, like the extension of where this case could go is so dangerous that we need people like you. And so I appreciate you. Oh, well, thank you. I, I appreciate you too, for many, many, many reasons. Um, <laughs> and, but I mean, fair and, you know, this effect affects all of us, but I also know I have, I have, or we have our bully pulpit here where we get to say some things in the end yes. though, this was a legal discussion and I'm going to leave that the rest of this discussion to others uh, who don't have a penis, right? Like I just, <laughs> I mean, we're part of that, as you say, but mm-hmm. I don't want to hear from other people like me about this issue and how it impacts them. I, I just don't. Yeah. I, I want to see you at protests. I want to see you writing letters to the editor and writing your, and calling your uh, legislators and Congress folk. Um, but it is, it is definitely something where women have led on this for a very long time. And it it just breaks my heart. The other thing I do want to mention is that people say precedent of the Supreme Court has been overruled before, and it has. Um, but it has never been to the point where rights that have been conferred or have been recognized on people have been contracted. It has never been that there has been less rights by a decision. There's always been more rights as a decision. And so this contraction um, really says to me that I don't have autonomy over my body. I, if I get pregnant, this estate would say I have to stay that way, regardless of the viability of the fetus, regardless of my own personal health, which to me is very, very important because I have had instances where friends needed these, life-saving ways needed these. Um, And it is something that is, oh, oh, and both Judaism and Islam says abortion is required. So I'm really interested in if this case goes up that uh, some Jewish or Muslim woman says, hey, I need an abortion and your stupid thing infringes on my religious freedom under, yeah, you know, it, First Amendment. Woohoo, let's it, do this. It could it yeah. could force them into a pretty uncomfortable position on their expansion of religious rights. Right. Um, I'm going to I'm going to convert so flipping fast. So <laughs> Mhm. On that we'll note, take all the classes. On that note, so. like, thanks for listening to me talk at <laughs> all of you for a while about this history. Um, and I'm sure you've had enough of me. Uh, so, like, Kate, why don't we? We're already at an hour. We knew this was going to run pretty long. Uh, but I yep. want to hear about um, how will this impact employers? And I think that's both in a direct and indirect sense. Yep. So directly, I see it as something where employees are going to be very, very afraid. Um, And there's going to be additional costs associated with, in particular, having women be employees, (laughs) which 
I realize is ridiculous, but this concept that we have tied healthcare to employment means that healthcare is going to, this form of healthcare, contraceptions, abortion, is wrapped up in that healthcare going forward, where we see companies like uh, Yelp, Amazon, Airbnb, Citigroup, Match Group, all saying that they will extend, Apple, all saying they will extend uh, travel benefits and additional pieces to allow their employees in those states to go to a state where they could receive an abortion, Um, which under the Texas law in particular gets pretty hairy because then they are assisting an abortion. So they could be uh, prosecuted by a a citizen saying, I get my $10,000 because you aided this abortion. Um, So there's some trickiness to that legally, but uh, standing up and saying, this is important for our people. The other part of this is IVF in particular. Um, Several companies that I work with closely offer IVF services because they know how important it is for their employees to want to have a family. And rules and laws like what Louisiana is seeking to pass um, create liability for IVF, where if you have an embryo and you're not inserting it, that that would be quote unquote murder. And so you could be prosecuted for not using all the embryos you are able to uh, get. Uh, essentially. So there, there is the practical effects of additional care, the fear of employees being afraid of these pieces, uh, potentially additional benefits coming out of it. But then there's also the Pregnancy Discrimination Act, which makes it discriminatory to treat a person different because of their status of being pregnant or not being pregnant. And so there's potential legal liability around that because I, I will admit abortion must be, hasn't been for me, but it must be the most difficult and private decision people make. And in order to get benefits from Apple, Amazon, Yelp, et cetera, you have to go disclose that you need it to their employer who is going to give you a whole bunch of money to, in order to go get it. And what if they decide they're going to fire you shortly after that? Like the potential for discrimination claims here is significant as well. So, yeah. Fun times had by all or a few. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. It's rough. Uh, I I know this is this has been a bit of a downer episode. Um, There's a lot at stake. There's a lot at risk here. And I think part of what we're trying to do here is just let folks know we're in for a long ride. This isn't something yeah. that, you know, I, I, I don't know about you when it comes to these things over the broad course of history, I tend to be an optimist that it will get better <laughs> in the long haul, but given where we are with the Supreme court right now, I just <laughs> don't see the short to midterm path to reestablish rights such as abortion or whatever else we may lose uh, because mm-hmm. of what I'm going to call a right wing theocratic Supreme court. Uh, it's just yeah. not, I just don't see it in the next 15, 20, 30 years. I think this is what's the next generation going to look like? What rights might we be able to get re- reinstated if if we're able to ever, you know, get the Democrats to, you know, get another, you know, to flip <laughs> one of these seats back. Um, yes. and, and I say that only because 
we know that a couple of these seats were through procedural methods stolen. I mean, just flat out stolen. Yeah. And the GOP will admit as much that they stole them. Yeah. Uh, and they stole them to this end. And so... Yeah. Well, the, and that long slog looks like army crawling through mud with a, on a bed of nails that all have tetanus in the rain and it is 120 degrees. So yeah. it will be painful to get out of this unless you know we all do something and if anybody does want to help do something but you don't know where to start please email me i can send you to some resources to get started i know that i will not be door knocking i will not be phone banking but i will be text banking i will be sending letters etc so there are lots of ways that you can step in even if you don't want to go to a protest if you, even if you don't want to do even just to be vocal in your support you know, yeah. every little thing makes a difference. Um, and I think be mindful of burnout in the short term, because we're yeah. not talking about a short term thing here. No. And, and, you know, as someone who is a strong advocate on a somewhat similar uh, piece where I serve as a statewide leadership of a place, you know, there's going to be someone else who can help step in, but we're all going to have to step in a bit for between now and at least November 8th. And then beyond that to make sure that our friends and neighbors get to be who they want to be. So. All right. On that note, I do, we won't, we will be back to regular programming in a few weeks. Uh, we will come yes. back to funny stories, uh, but we felt like this was necessary both for ourselves to get it off of our chests, but also <laughs> Uh, hopefully you learned something about where this all comes from and what's really at risk here. And we want, we want all of you to take that away from this conversation as you're starting to talk with your communities about it. Yeah. And I, I agree with every HR person who hates the idea that this is on their plate. I completely understand. Nobody wants this one on the plate, especially after the last two years y'all have been through, but it is just naturally there so we're gonna have to talk and have conversations about it so all right we're at okay. an hour 10 you already know <laughs> yes, how to find sorry. us we're just gonna go yes <laughs> that uh, makes sense have a great couple of weeks everyone don't let this get you too down uh we still have life to lead and uh yes. we will we will carry on but uh thank you all for listening we really appreciate it